session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. So before I start with the summary of the book for this past week, let me give you the book of the week for this week, which I'll discuss uh, next Monday's show. And that is After the Affair. Healing the Pain and Rebuilding Trust When a Partner Has Been Unfaithful by Janice Abrams Spring, After the Affair. Um, And this is actually a book of the week that I myself have not read yet, so this is going to be my first read. And I also say that because I can't say I can recommend it because I haven't read it myself, but I can say that I've heard from many psychologists and many people that this is a good book for an important topic, uh, Unfaithfulness Affairs and uh, for people trying to rebuild the relationship after the affair, um, this book is supposed to be very helpful. So looking forward to reading it this week and discussing it with you all next Monday. Now, the book for this past week that I'll be discussing tonight is The Upward Spiral by Alex Korb. And you might recall Alex Korb was on the show, I think it was probably around two years ago now, um, to discuss this book and... Really enjoyed having him on the show and really enjoyed this book. I think this is maybe third or fourth time I've read it because it is really a great book that I'd highly recommend. For anyone who's dealt with depression, knows someone who's dealt with depression, or even if you haven't, because what he talks about in the book um, related to neuroscience and the research on depression and how different things we can do can make changes in our brain is really helpful for everyone. Uh, It's just like if someone says, here's a way to live a healthier life for people who have some kind of disease, let's say heart disease. Well, a lot of the things that's going to be good for people that have heart disease are going to be good for anyone. So you actually can learn a lot about it when you read that as well. And on top of that, depression is one of those things that, although not all of us will have a full-blown major depressive disorder or episode even, although I'd say most people have an episode, but all of us experience the various degrees. So it's not something that you'll completely not, it'll completely not affect you. And definitely if you also include your loved ones, you'll be touched by depression in some way to some degree. So I think it'd be a very helpful book. So to begin with the title of the book itself, The Upward Spiral, in a way it's a play on uh, the downward spiral that is sometimes used to describe depression. And so what does that mean? And actually, On page three of the book, Dr. Alex Korb says, the big problem with the downward spiral of depression is that it doesn't just get you down, it keeps you down. And so what this is is talking about, the downward spiral of depression is, there's a lot of ways that depression, or by becoming depressed, the things and the symptoms that 
has and the, the behaviors that it can encourage or create in you make your depression even stronger or get you even darker or deeper in this hole of depression. This is what the downward spiral is. So let me give you an example or talk about what this might look like. So let's say you're feeling kind of down and it's a Friday night and you're invited to go somewhere, but because you're feeling kind of down, you also feel like you don't really have the energy to go. And in a depressed mood, you might also feel not very good about yourself, your self-esteem. So I'm like, oh, I don't feel so great about how I look, or I don't know what I'm going to wear. Maybe it's not going to be fun when you're depressed. You're less likely to enjoy things that you used to enjoy. So after all that, you say, I'm just going to stay home. And then you stay home, but then by the end of the night, you kind of feel bad that you didn't do anything. And you end up staying up late watching TV because you're just not feeling very good. Depression also affects your sleep. The next morning you wake up late and you just feel really bad about yourself. Oh, I didn't do anything last night. Oh, it would be good if I work out today. But now again, I don't have the energy. And then this starts to make you feel worse about yourself and on and on and on. And this is just for a day or two. But we know that depression works in this way, unfortunately. The things you need to do the most to help you get better are the hardest for you to do. You need to exercise or that would be very helpful, but you don't have the energy or the motivation to get yourself going. Social support can help you, um, but it's most people who become depressed, unfortunately, begin to isolate themselves more and more, which contributes to feeling, feeling worse about themselves, not getting the social support and interaction they need, and they get more and more depressed. And so Dr. Korb expresses that, how the downward spiral works in this way of what we see in behavior and actions, but also he does a wonderful job just demonstrating or describing how this takes place in the brain. And what I really enjoyed about this book is that he describes everything in a very clear way and very technical at the same time, but he also explains it in layman's terms or in regular language, not just neuroscience language, so that you could understand what he's talking about. So even if you don't know about the uh, dorsal striatum or the insula or whatever other terms he's talking about or different parts of the brain, you still can understand what he's saying, what the research is showing us. And I think he does a great job of giving you both, giving you the technical and scientific in case you want to see it and learn that, but also explaining it in a very simple, clear, uh, concise way so you can understand what the research is telling you and what the take-home messages are. So he describes how the brain and various aspects or parts of the brain take uh, part or are contributing to depression. In particular, he talks about the frontal limbic uh, communication or circuit. So the frontal lobe is basically like our rational mind, the thinking mind that does the planning, um, you know, trying to figure out the consequence of things. That all comes from our rational mind, which is primarily seated in the frontal lobe. The limbic system is the emotional center of the of the brain. This is things like the amygdala, which is plays a big part in fear and anxiety, and also uh, the hippocampus is another part of the um, limbic system. And these parts of the brain, or this part of the brain, is more the emotion-feeling part. And as he describes it, there's something that goes wrong in the communication between these two parts of the brain in people that become depressed. There's a lot going on, and he explains how complex it is, and he also explains that scientists are still trying to understand how depression works. They don't fully understand all of it. They understand it far more now than they did just maybe a few years ago or a few decades ago because of the advancements in imaging the brain. 
But he explains that we still don't fully know it, and that's why they're continuing to research it, to understand it. But a big part is this communication between the logical, rational part and the emotional part. And I found that interesting uh, because I've talked recently at length about emotional intelligence and how the integration of our logical, rational mind and our emotional self is so critical for overall well-being and mental and, and just our health and uh, uh, success in our lives. But here we see that when this gets disrupted, when we don't have this healthy integration, when something is wrong in that communication or that circuitry, we end up becoming depressed. So he explains the downward spiral very well, but then he says that because of the complexity of how all these parts, there's so many moving parts, these different aspects of the brain and different behaviors and symptoms that it creates, because they can create a downward spiral at the same time, if you make small changes in any part of the system, it could start to create an upward spiral, which is where the title of the book comes from, where you can actually start getting things moving in the opposite direction. So he has several chapters where he goes through different things you can do or different aspects of our lives or behavior that we can make small changes in, that those small changes could actually turn into something really big. So the first one in creating an upward spiral is he talks about exercise. And obviously we know exercise is good for us physically, but here he talks about how important it is and how helpful it is for us mentally and emotionally, um, how it can increase the firing rate of serotonin neurons, which is related to uh, depression. One of the most important neurotransmitters in depression is serotonin. A lot of antidepressants uh, specifically deal with serotonin. Not only does it do that, it increases um, the type of neurons or the neurotransmitters that increase our neuron growth. So you actually can create more neurons in the brain just by exercising. Or even he talked about a study where just after 10 minutes of biking, so riding a stationary bike, people wanted cigarettes less compared to a control group. This was a group of smokers. They were comparing them. Just after 10 minutes, the activation in the brain made it so that they actually craved the cigarettes less. And not only that, it improves your sleep, it makes you less stressed, it improves your mood, and we can see how this itself is creating an upward spiral that makes other things easier and makes us feel better, and on and on and up and up we go. So the first one he talks about is exercise, and again, he explains how the brain actually does change in really very well-written detail, and again, detail that's not too scientific where you don't know what's going on, but you get an idea really what's happening in the brain. But then he goes on to other ways that you can improve um, your, your, your well-being or your mental health or try to fight depression, things like setting goals and making decisions, how that can be important. Then a very important chapter on sleep and how that's a very important part of our overall physical and mental health. But especially in depression, we see decreases or increases in the amount of sleep and also people lacking energy. Um, and he gets into why that's the case and how important it is for us to make improvements in sleep. And again, it can even just be a small improvement, but that can potentially be enough to get things going in the right direction. And that's what I liked about this book. It re He reminds you that you take a small step in the right direction. When you take that first step, you don't necessarily feel all that different. It's not going to make the change. But when you see the science and recognize, okay, these are steps in the right direction, 
then you know all I have to do, keep doing is doing the right things, taking these small steps one after another and having the faith that I'm doing the right things and that this will have an effect. It's just like if you wanted to lose a large amount of weight, you don't just go to the gym once and say, well, because my body didn't change, exercise doesn't work. You know the research and uh, everything else about exercise shows you that it does work if you do it long enough, so you keep doing the right things. Um, and he also talks about things like gratitude, which I talked about actually last week, and how important that can be in creating what he calls a gratitude circuit that then leads to more positive thinking or more positive things coming to mind along with other things that can contribute to reducing your depression. And then he talks about social support and interaction and how critical this is in many ways, but also in releasing oxytocin, which is sometimes called the love hormone or the love neurotransmitter, but just different small interactions or a hug, or even he talks about getting a massage. So if anyone needed an excuse to get a massage, they can read this book and say, well, now it's scientifically supported that I should get a massage, so go ahead and do that. But he talks about how there's different ways that socially or just through touch, hugs, different things, you can actually improve your mood and make a difference. Not only make you feel better, but he talks about this studies that show that pain gets reduced when you have social support. So they had women... Um, with their brains hooked up to, I think, an fMRI so they can measure their brain activity. And they told them they were going to get a shock. And when you do that, you saw the pain receptors or the pain part of the brain and the worry part of the brain light up. But when they were able to hold the hand of their husband, they actually saw that those parts of the brain fired less. So it showed that just having that comfort, having someone made a reduction in the pain that they felt, which I think is actually quite beautiful when you think about it, because we think about having someone and maybe we didn't need anyone to hook our brains up to anything to tell us it feels better to go through life with someone. But here it's showing us through science, through these, these studies that really it actually does reduce the pain that we feel. We feel less pain when we're going through something with someone. And that's why Social support and love and connection is so important. At the end of the day, we are social beings. There's something we get out of that. But here the science is showing us exactly what's happening and that it's not just something in our heads, or I should say it is in our heads because something in our brain is firing differently when we have that love and social support. So how important that is. He also gets into how therapy works. And I found this chapter, I've read it now several times, very fascinating because you can see the changes that therapy can make in the depressed brain, but also how medication and other treatments work too. And interestingly, he points out how very often therapy works on the brain differently than the medication does, uh, which might be part of the reason why the combination of therapy and medication can be the best treatment or the most effective treatment because they are in a way, attacking different parts of the of the prov the same problem and creating even more of an upward spiral. So, you know, the book obviously is much more detailed than what I just described. I just gave just the different maybe subject titles of each chapter because he packs in so much of what you can do to help improve how you are feeling. And like I said, most of what he talks about it are things that would be good for anyone. You don't have to wait till you're depressed to start doing these things. Um, but I'd highly recommend it. A very simple, pretty quick read that can be very meaningful and useful, very practical. 
He tells you things you can do and, you know, the ways that you can do it, and then you can start to apply them in your life. So I highly recommend the book, The Upward Spiral, if you haven't read it yet. I hope you do by Dr. Alex Korb. And once again, our book for this coming week, this coming week, which I'll discuss next Monday, is After the Affair by Janice Abrams Spring. After the Affair. So I'll post a picture of that book uh, the next day or two on social media so you can make sure you're getting that book correctly. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, Dr. Hulakwi. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Uh, thanks for having me on the line. Sure. Uh, I have a question about uh, depression, uh, about myself. Okay. Um, I know that I have major depression, but sometimes I feel good. So mm-hmm. I don't know how to differentiate it, whether it's a yeah. Mania episode, is it a mixed episode? Because if I compare it with my previous mood, I can call it mania. But if I compare with other people, it's normal. Yeah. It's not like a crazy thing. Sure, that's a good, you know, you're, you're bringing up a good question. And how old are you? I'm uh, 32. 32, right. And then you were you called two weeks ago, correct? Correct. Okay. Um, and last time I think we talked a little bit more about what you were doing with school and things also. Right. Okay. But this, I mean, let's talk about, this is important um, because when you talk about uh, depression and then differentiating it between bipolar disorder. So in depression, you have the depressed mood. And I talked a bit about it in the last segment because of the book, but it involves things like having a sad or depressed episode. You're having a sad mood or depressed mood, lack of self-confidence, self-esteem. You can have issues related to your sleep, uh, issues related to appetite and weight gain. Your energy is less, focus, and there's different symptoms. And then uh, mania, which in, when we talk about bipolar, that's the opposite pole or the other pole, is you have a decreased need for sleep, actually. You can feel quite fine for after a few hours. And in a full-blown mania, you can have you have a euphoric mood, so your mood is really high. You have a lot of energy. Again, you have a lack of a need for sleep, so this, you can sleep for a few hours but still have energy. Inflated sense of self-esteem. Um, but also can engage in risky behaviors from promiscuous behavior to gambling, to shopping, to reckless driving, drug use, things like that. So mania, when you start to describe mania, actually, for a lot of people, they actually think, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. Because uh, when I say inflated sense of self-esteem, you don't need as much sleep. Um, You're in a good, you have a euphoric mood. It sounds good. And the beginning parts of mania can feel good. But if you have a full-blown manic episode, it's very distressing. You're also irritable. You um, tend to make bad decisions, as I was saying. You become impulsive, and so it can be very dangerous. Even you can become psychotic, meaning you're hearing things or seeing things, having hallucinations or have delusions. So it's not a good type of a high, if you want to call it that. It's actually very bad. And the way we would describe it, I think the, the distinction you gave was a good way of saying it. We're not describing it compared to the depressed mood, but really from a baseline. So, you know, in bipolar, we're saying, you know, everyone's on a line. When you're depressed, you go way below that line. And then when you're manic, you go way above that line. 
But what you're describing, or at least very briefly, we can get into what you really do experience, might be, like you said, you get very depressed, but then there's other times where your mood is not so low, but it's back to kind of an average place. It's nothing too extreme, at least the way you described it. Um, and, and another important distinction there, and we'll get into more what you're experiencing, because I hear this sometimes when you either tell someone maybe they're depressed or ask them if someone they know is depressed, they'll say, oh, well, I saw them laughing yesterday or they were telling jokes the other day, so they can't be depressed. And that's not the case. Depression doesn't mean you're you're sad all of the time. 24 hours a day, you feel nothing but misery. You can't laugh. You can't leave your bed. Some people can get to that point where it's that extreme. But for most cases, there's people, they're still laughing. You might even work with someone who's depressed. You might not know. Maybe they're hiding it from you. Maybe they keep a lot of what they're experiencing inside. But they can laugh and joke and, you know, all those things still. But overall, they might be having all these symptoms of depression and their mood might be sad most of the time. It doesn't have to be all the time. So um, let's talk about you a little bit when you say, you know, you think you're depressed, but then you see these changes in your mood. What are you what are you experiencing? When I'm not so sad? Yeah. How, like, what is it? How does it become when you say that what you're not the, the times where you think, am I being manic? What are you experiencing? For instance, first of all, I don't feel so bad about myself. Uh I don't compare myself with others, and I feel uh, a bit optimistic about the future, and also a little bit assertive at work when someone doesn't treat me well. Hmm. Okay, and... um does this last for days, or is this just a short amount of time? Maybe one week. Huh. Okay. So for one and week, you'll has, feel that way. It's, it has a, like a direct uh, correlation with my performance. What do you mean by so, that? I mean, when I, when I don't feel myself too behind others... Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel good, but when I feel like loss or others are doing better than me. In fact, when I when I practice what I learned from your father, not to compare myself with others, mm-hmm. it gives me good feeling. Sure, and it seems like you're saying you can only do that, or you can only avoid the comparing when you're feeling a little bit better. But when you're feeling down, you're comparing yourself to other people. An effect is vice versa. When I don't compare myself, I sure feel good. I'm not sure <laughs> it could be. Yeah, it's could. It's hard to. It's kind of the chicken or the egg. It might be hard to distinguish which yeah. one it is. Um, a lot of times, those thoughts come automatically. That's why I was wondering if it's the change first. But they definitely. I was just talking about the upward spiral and the downward spiral related to depression. It definitely works that way because yes, if you start. Whether if you're in a bad mood and then you start comparing yourself, you'll be in a worse mood. If you're comparing yourself to people and then that'll make you more upset or sad, you'll probably compare yourself more and, you know, it's just going to be a downward spiral either way. It's hard to say which one is first. Of course, whatever you can control, you want to try to control. So you want to do your best to not compare yourself. So even if the thought comes to your mind, try not to focus on it. Just focus on something else because we know it's not going to be a useful 
thought. But, the, you know, that's something that might pop into your head and you have a hard time controlling. Um, now, when you're in these times where you have less of a, when you feel a little bit better, is your sleep different in any way? No, just during the day when I'm depressed, I'm sleepy. But when I when I'm not, when I feel good at work during the day, I'm kind of alert. When you're depressed, or these times when you're feeling better? When I feel when I feel better, okay. I, I'm alert during the day. But when I'm depressed, I'm very sleepy during the day. I see. So, you know, another thing, you know, we can look at is you could be having, you know, hypomania. So full-blown mania is very extreme and it would probably be hard for you to miss it because it would affect your life in some way. Like you would see the difference in some negative ways, not just positive. Hypomania is like a less severe mania. So you might see, you might have less need for sleep. So you could have more energy. You might even see increases in your metabolism, those things. Uh, can change, uh, you know, if you have an elevated mood during the day, um, you know, it could be related to that. And so I would recommend, and I think when we spoke last time, we talked about seeing um, a mental health professional. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. How, uh, how has that gone so far? Um, I, <laughs> I call many doctor's offices, but uh, I haven't found anyone who take my insurance okay or meet my schedule so i'm still looking for someone to take my okay uh, insurance uh doctor uh, if if uh, time allows can i talk a little bit about my life history you can a little bit you know i want to uh, you know, there's an, uh, other callers on the line, and one of them had called for a few weeks, and I haven't been able to bring them on. So I did let them know I wanted to bring them on for the last segment. So we have about five, six minutes, um, because I want to make sure I give them a chance as well. So it's up to you what you think you'd want to do with that. Getting too deep into maybe the history might not be best. Um, we can stay with this, because even in what you just said, I do have some things I want to say, because... Uh, I can understand finding a therapist is not easy, but I really want you to make it a priority, especially now if you're saying there are these concerns, there could be maybe some hypomania. I'm not sure yet. It could just be your depression going through some cycles, but either way, I think it would be very important for you to see even a psychiatrist first, if you can't find a good psychologist and go th rather than going to the therapist, why not try going through your insurance and seeing who's available through them? Um, and then going forward because the other way around you're probably gonna waste or spend a lot of time you find someone you finally communicate with them and they say no and then you go to someone else you're more likely to get discouraged but if you could go through your insurance that might be the better route oh oh yes i i didn't think about that yeah i can contact them and ask who participate in the plan yeah who's part of their network because I think really, I remember when we spoke last time in more detail, and like I said, I'm kind of being hesitant not to open up too much because of the timing, because uh, we only have a few minutes we'll be able to talk. But it's really going to be necessary for you to, to talk to someone and to really see what's going on, even especially when you're not sure if you, you it's possible you might even need medication if there's some possibility of uh, what you would have is if you have hypomania, which I, I'm not suggesting you necessarily do, we would call that bipolar 2 disorder. In bipolar one, 
if you have a manic episode at any point, it's you're giving the diagnosis of bipolar one. Medication is definitely needed for that diagnosis. Bipolar two, you're still going to need medication very likely, but that means you're having you're having hypomanic, not manic, episodes. Um, so I would really recommend that. Let me ask you this though: Do you feel like there's something holding you back from actually going in to see someone? No. Okay. Because, you know, ther starting therapy for many people is sometimes maybe scary or intimidating. A lot of people avoid it. So I always say this, that when someone's in the therapy room for me for their first session, I know that many times it's been years that they've been dealing with this issue and thinking about coming in, but not being able to get themselves there. And so when they're finally there, it's our first session, but it's it's part of a history of things that they've been dealing with going back and forth to finally come in. Um, so maybe for you, you're not having that resistance, but maybe you are and you're not aware of it because I would make uh, it a priority. Yeah. Um, there is something maybe minor just in the, in the region that I live. Uh, many people and many psych psychologists are uh, part of a religion and... For me, it's very important um, not to see a therapist who, who is religious. R religious or that, or that their practice is religious? Um, I mean, many, many clinics are, are affiliated with a oh, specific religion uh -huh. here. Okay. So, uh, well, yeah, that can make a difference. I mean, you want to make sure a very big part of therapy is you feel like the person understands you and relates to you and sees the world or at least can understand the way you see your, your, the world. doesn't mean you wouldn't be able to get good therapy from someone there, but you have to feel comfortable with that person. Um, and that's why yeah, I would suggest going through your, your insurance to find someone. But I would make this, uh, don't think that this, you know, de your depression and what you're going through and especially the traumas that you've experienced is something that you're going to solve on your own. It's going to be, um, you, you're almost definitely going to need help. And so I want you not to, um, to think of it as you're almost losing time by not getting help. Make it that much of a priority that I need to hurry up and get started on this because you're going to need, need that help. Uh, you know, I'd recommend a book like The Upward Spiral that I talked about today. That can be helpful, but even in the book it does talk about therapy and medication and different treatments because those things really can be necessary and in my opinion based on the traumas you experienced when you were younger uh, you're going to need to get that looked at or talked about to really get past it it's not something that's going to go away on its own uh, uh, sure absolutely I, I go through my uh, insurance rather than finding numbers. Yeah, you can do both, but if you're, I'm saying if you've been unsuccessful, I would try it the other way around at least for a little while. And you might even consider because you're concerned about this diagnosis of bipolar, um, and you know, I'm not the way you described it, I'm not so convinced it's possible, but just even to get that clarity, sometimes it could be easier to find a psychiatrist first. So I would say go to either one, let them know you're concerned, let them know what you're looking for. And, and then go from there. And so I know today we didn't get to open up a lot because I maybe you wanted to get into some family issues. But since I want to get or, uh, your history, um, I do want to get to the other caller who was waiting right now because they'd called for a few weeks. But, you know, maybe you can call back another time. We can talk more. But I hope next time you call, you'll have the good news that you started seeing someone. Uh, 
thank you. Sure, but thank you for calling. Uh, thank you so much. Wish you all the best again. Yeah, get yourself the help you deserve, okay? Thank you. Sure. All right, nice talking to you. Have a good night. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to our next caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Uh, hi, are you talking to me? Yes, I am. Thank you for calling. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. And I also wanted to thank you uh, because last time when I was listening to your radio, I understood you have Instagram and you introduce your books on Instagram and that is wonderful. I just got the first book which I heard that was emotional intelligence mm-hmm. and I read about that and thank you for introducing good books to us. Oh, great. Well, thank you. I'm glad you are. It's, it's great for me too. And yes, I just started the Instagram page about three weeks ago. Um, so putting the books there as well. But yes, um, the books of the week, I hope people will join along and join in the discussion. But thank you for that. Uh, we got about 15 minutes. So I want to make sure we get to your question. So go right ahead. Okay. Doctor, I am in a relationship. The question is about relationship. Okay. And to know if I am in a correct or whatever relationship. I don't want to be in the wrong path. Uh, I am uh, an Iranian, and um, I would like to date Americans. Okay, how uh, old are you? Uh, I am 55. 55. Have you been married before? Yes, I have been. Okay, um, and do you have any children from that marriage? Yes, I do have two children. They are grown up and on their own. Okay, and how long ago did you get divorced? Uh, about 18, 19 years ago. 19 years ago. Okay, so it's been a while. Okay, um, and you're saying you want to date an American? Yes. Is, is it specifically American, or is it just definitely not Persian? Not Persian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, what, what? why do you think that is? I mean, you're talking to a Persian man, so make sure not to offend me. But no, but really, what, what makes you not want to date a Persian man? Uh, doctor, in my opinion, uh, because, you know, I am that country, I know Persian men, many of them, at least as many as I know. Um, of course, there are good Persian men, I'm not talking about them, but many of them, they are not that much open-minded, and uh, their lifestyle, I don't like it. I am very active, I do exercise, I, you know, I go to watch opera, theater, and uh, paddle boarding, hiking, running, you know, I'm very active. And mm-hmm. I can't find that much present man can contribute to all of them. You know, mostly when you are with them, at least that was my experience. You know, they like to have parties, sitting together, talking, and it is not bad, but all the time and not having kind of personal hobbies and being dependent. I think the culture is too dependent. I think I am not that much. Maybe I am, but... That's why, and also the respect for women mm-hmm. that I'm looking for, I can find it that I haven't find it in present men, and um, and I know many of them are good. I haven't met them. Okay. Uh, now I'll say, you know, I'll, about the hobbies. I mean, maybe they're slightly different. The hobbies. I'm I'm sure you can find that. I will say when you talk about the respect for women, again, we're not generalizing, but yes, the Persian culture itself 
is not very respectful of women and definitely sees men as superior and better than women. Mm -hmm. So anyone who holds on to the traditional values and gender roles might have that. So I can understand where you're coming from. I would still say it's not going to be everyone or all of them, but that's up to you. I'm wondering also, were you, you know, you went through this divorce. Were you hurt by this relationship or the marriage? I mean, divorce is always painful, but was it a, the marriage itself, was it painful and was the divorce something ugly? Actually, was the best part of my life. But okay. <laughs> the, my, I was married when I was 18, and um, I didn't choose the correct person who is compatible with me. And um, I was from a family who were very well off, and I always had money. And mm-hmm. uh, when I married, and I decided to be just on my own, not on feet of my dad or mom. My husband wasn't able to work very well, and we were always, we didn't have money, and he was always struggling. Lots of things about that, and even when we had kids, and, uh, you know, he couldn't afford to pay for food even. Mm-hmm. And that time, long ago, which <laughs> you didn't born yet, um, I, I was in university, but there was a revolution in Iran, which they um, take us out of university and they didn't let us go back to university. I fought for it for 10 years. Finally, I went back and I got my bachelor's degree. But meanwhile, uh, it was so hard living with someone who cannot afford the life. And um, I started working on my Mm -hmm. own hair salon, something like that. But still, it was so, so hard. Okay. Yeah, I was just trying to get a... You know, the reason why I was asking is because... The way you said you don't want to date a Persian man, I was trying to get a better understanding of what what's going on there. Because we have to look at a few things. One is, yes, you could have had some very bad experiences, um, even in your childhood, with how your own father was, let's say, with your mom and with you. And I was wondering about your marriage, if he was disrespectful or putting you down. Now you're saying a lot of the struggles were financial and that he was not able to provide for you and the family, which seems to have created a lot of stress. Because there's also an element we have to be aware of when someone says they definitely don't want to date within their own race or ethnicity, that there could be some negativity even towards the self. That that's something that we don't want to have someone like us or we have something that we dislike about our own self and culture. So that's something you know, I want you to, to think about because we have to really get at where is this coming from. It could just be like you said, the hobbies, you feel like you don't match with people that are... A Persian, and then also the way they treat women is something you're not okay with. And that I can understand, especially if you're finding men that way. But I'm just going to throw that out there for you to think about. Sure. And just to let you know, uh, I had a wonderful dad. He was very uh, liberal. And uh, he and my mom, they both worked. Mm-hmm. And he was wonderful. You know, we had a, I think I had a good childhood, like, uh, especially with my dad, because he was very nice, very calm. We had all this fun together. Okay. Now, because I know you wanted to ask about, a, I think, was it about someone you're actually dating right now? Yes. I okay, so I want to give you time for that, because there's a lot we could have talked about here in the various aspects. Also, when it comes to culture, the more closely matched we are in culture, the better off we are. Does it mean Iranian and Iranian is the same? Because someone who was born here and someone who was born in Iran and came a month ago, although they can both be an Iranian-American now, are very different. So it's how similar we are. So cultural differences can be a challenge. Doesn't mean you can't make it work. But anyway, tell us about uh, what you're dealing with now or what you're going through now. Uh, 
Okay, I'm dating a gentleman who is about one year older than me. Okay. And, um, he, you know, I'm very active and he's kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Man. Mm-hmm. Very respectful. He's very respectful to my culture, even though um, I don't want, for example, to date Iranian men, but um, I like part of my culture and always I respect that and it is important for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he understood that, and he, he even speak, tried to speak Farsi, and, you know, he, we went together to a comedy show of Iranian-American person, you know, something. Mm-hmm. Something. Very good. Something. Now, let me ask you, how long have you guys been dating? Um, about three months. Three months. Okay, so it's fairly new. Okay, go ahead. What's your, you know, we have about eight minutes, so I want to make sure you get to, what's your concern, or what are you worried about? Uh, many things about him, a few things. One of them is uh, he talks a lot. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he talks, and I, I told him also, because I'm very direct too. And once I talked to him, and I said, you know, I think sometimes you talk a lot. And he understood that he knew about himself. And he tried to make it a little better. But uh-huh. I really don't know what's the reason. People Sometimes they talk too much. It's that anxiety. And a little bit about him, he is a twin, one of the twins which um, his brother passed away. Hmm. And when, he, when, when he was how old? 25. 25. And, and his passed away, two sisters, and uh, they are not living close. They are in another state. And he is on um, I thought maybe insecurity, anxiety. Plus, uh, when I went to his house, he had a lot in his house. I am a person who lives very simple. If you come to my house, I have whatever I have, I use it and I need it. There is nothing extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, even house may seem not very full. Mm-hmm. You know, let me ask you a few, yeah, just because of, you know, the time. So, yeah, when it comes to talking a lot, there's a lot of different reasons for talking a lot. And I consider myself who actually talks too much sometimes myself. I talk a lot also. So it, there's lots of different reasons for that. You mentioned anxiety. Sometimes it can be. Sometimes people who are very anxious and even socially anxious, they kind of just, they talk a lot and they talk like this. And there's a pressured feeling in the way they talk. It almost feels like you can feel their anxiety. Then there's also the people that talk a lot that are narcissistic, that they think what they have to say is more important than what the other person has to say, either in a group or individually, and they always want it to be about them. So there's people that talk a lot in that way too. Then there's people that are very passionate about different things, and in different topics they might be what might seem like talking too much. They might talk a lot, but they don't do it in other areas. So when it comes to him, do you feel like you have space to talk, or does he not give you space to, to speak your mind and have in the conversations you have with him? He, he, that is safe. Maybe not as much as I wanted. Okay. But he gave me the space. He asked me, okay, what is your opinion? And he gave me a space. But then I stopped talking a little bit. Then um, all of a sudden he again stopped talking. Okay, well, that, that's something, you know, to think about. It's interesting because not, uh, you know, what you're describing, it's hard to tell yet, but there could be a f- the feeling I'm getting is that he doesn't value what you have to say as much as what he wants to say. Um, and that's something you need to have that back and forth. Do you, is, are there other ways do you feel like he's very respectful of you in different ways? He is. He is. I dated many men. Uh-huh. 
wonderful, very okay. nice. So maybe maybe he that, that's just part of his personality. But, you know, it's something you can bring up with him. Again, my concern would be, and the reason why I brought it up, is if you're in a relationship with someone and they don't give you the space to speak, or sometimes even, especially men towards women, but it can go both ways. They can be very condescending, talk down to the other person, or make the person feel like their opinion is not valuable or important, and also that they're not as valuable as them. That's a bad feeling. It might not be the case with him. If you mention his house being the way he is, if it's to the extent that he's hoarding, he's holding on to way too much stuff, that usually comes from anxiety. So he might be someone who's an anxious person. What does he do, do for work? Uh, he's a consultant for um, media company. Okay. All right. But so maybe, you know, there could be the anxiety could be there and that could be why he's he's talking the way. So he might not even realize it. He gets kind of carried away in the moment or he's just filling up the space. But but that could okay. be something that's that's okay. going on. I talk to him. I talked to him about uh, indirectly about how much he has. And then he came to my house and he saw how do I live. He was shocked, and then we listened to many TED Talks about uh, hoarding, keeping, and then he started cleaning up his house. That is amazing. <laughs> every day, every day he's going to Google and taking something out. And I was, oh, what is that? And he said, I learned that from my dad, because my dad, um, it was from recession, and they always mm-hmm. met. And I just learned it from him. But he always appreciates me to show him a new way of living. Mm-hmm. And he uh, lightening his, lightening his life. I don't know, can I count it as a good positive thing? The fact that he's making these changes? Yes. Well, the way you're describing them, you know, positive changes are obviously positive. But if, if they're too extreme, they can be concerning. But when you're... Describing doesn't seem like he was a really bad hoarder and now he's he's clean, you know, going, becoming very extremely different. It just seems like he's being more clean and, and getting rid of some things. Extreme changes we always want to be aware of, even if it's really good. Sometimes that could be a sign of something unstable. But the way you're describing it doesn't seem th- that way. So I don't know. You know, I, I know you un- understand your concern, but so your concern is those things basically that he's changing. And yes. that he talks too much? He talks, but recently getting a little better. Okay. But about clearing his house, he's good, you know, the tons of things he has extra. And then he's going through all of them. Whatever he doesn't need, he's giving to good with. It is good. It seems good. Mm-hmm. But I to um, talk to you and see what is your point of view about that. Well, you know, like I said, and we, we didn't get a lot of time to talk about it maybe with more time we can get a little more deep into what's happening here but from what you're describing it doesn't seem really concerning to me it's not that i'm giving you the stamp of approval that you guys are definitely right for each other but um what you're telling me if you guys i would keep talking to him about it if you feel like he doesn't let you talk or you're not talking as much as you'd like in the conversations you can bring it up more and keep an eye on it and make sure he's respecting you in that way of talking but the way you're saying that he's cleaning his house more doesn't seem too extreme if again like i said extreme changes even if they're positive can be a little bit of a concern at time because they can be a sign of an instability but what you're describing doesn't seem so concerning so i would say keep going slowly going forward getting to know each other um if you'd like to call back another time and we can get maybe deeper into what's happening we can do that but for now from what you told me nothing seems really 
scary or concerning at this time? Dr. Rolakwe, can you just in a few sentences you tell me, and I definitely back about what should we when we date people oh wow <laughs> that's a very good question I, I'm saying oh wow because I'm actually looking and I'm over the time I have to go to the commercial break and end the show maybe if you do call back we can get into it because I think it's a, that's a great question and there's it's nothing I can give you one or two sentences about but I do appreciate you calling I hope you have a great night thank you so much for your time my Roger. pleasure thank take care bye bye all right. Thank you to the callers and listeners out there. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulokwi. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>